This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today on the show, we'll hear how a copyright lawsuit against Katy Perry puts the pressure on producers and songwriters. This is over her 2013 song, Dark Horse. Make me we'll hear about a new single from a Seattle-area artist. She wrote the song based on comments people told her she should do or be in life. A lot of people have told me, oh, you're too bubbly, like you seem too happy. You should be more serious. And then other people have said, you should really smile more. (laughs) You know, that's just one example. Wise Blood will talk about how a theme in the movie Titanic inspired her latest album. I felt like the real takeaway was the hubris of man and our lack of dominion over nature. But first, we have a story of how music connects us together. Have you ever listened to a song and thought, this describes exactly what I'm going through right now? You feel connected to that song. And that was the case for Rachel Stevens. There was one song that connected with her and got her through a very personal experience of loss. She then took that connection to the next level and went straight to the source to find out what the song was really about. Here's her story. For women who are 35, 22% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. Almost a quarter. This is something we never talk about. It was still pretty early in my pregnancy, but that did not stop my excitement, nor the excitement of my husband. We told our families. We told our friends. I messaged someone on Craigslist about a fancy crib. It was February when I miscarried. I spent Valentine's Day sinking heavy into my bed, avoiding mirrors because I would burst into tears if I saw my face, and fielding calls for work. I worked through most of my miscarriage for a couple reasons. One, I had made myself indispensable at work. As a woman, it felt like something I needed to do. And two... I didn't know how to talk about what I was going through. We never talk about miscarriage. So I worked from my bed. I didn't leave my bed. This time period was a hole for me, and I didn't see how I would come out of that hole. When it was time for me to go back into work, into my office, I had my husband drop me off and pick me up. So I would go from bed to sulk in the car, to work with my head down, and then do it in reverse. But when his job didn't allow for that grace anymore... I rode the bus. The first day riding the bus into work was like my first time truly out of the hole. I put my headphones in and I turned on music, the radio, for the first time since it had all happened. As the bus pulled up to my stop on 3rd and Union, an old familiar song came on. I had listened to Nothing Arrived by Villagers dozens of times. But this time, it was like listening to the lyrics for the first time. As I got off the bus and started walking up Union Street, I just had to stop and cry. The words were hitting me too hard. Music does this thing to us that connects us right back to it all, for better or worse. But this song was next level for me. Throughout the whole song, it felt like this song was talking about a miscarriage. It was saying what I was trying to say without me having to say it. Well, I guess it's over. 
The guilt we're not supposed to feel, but all absolutely do, came rushing through me. I suddenly felt known and understood in a way I hadn't before. I felt connected. And that's when I decided 100% this song had to be about a miscarriage. But it couldn't be, right? I went back and forth in my head over and over, listening to the song again and again. We do this. We hear a song and we think that it's exactly about us, exactly what we're going through. It's the power of music that connection. But we rarely ever get to find out what the songs are actually about. Did someone in Villagers go through a miscarriage too? Is that why there are lines like, my dear sweet nothing, let's start anew? From here all in, it's just me and you? I decided to go to the source to find out. I'm Connor. I write all the words and I write all the music and then um, I let everyone else kick it around a little bit and then we play shows. Yeah. Connor O'Brien has been the lead singer and songwriter of Villagers for 11 years now. I actually ended up getting a hold of him at his home in Dublin, and he had no idea what this interview was about or for, which made me way more nervous than I already was. So we started with small talk so that I could get brave as the interview went on. I asked him about his songwriting process. There's a lot of songs which are quite soul-bearing, but they're, they're written from a sort of a quite an open existential perspective you know and 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 the, they're still very personal but the, the words are quite carefully chosen so that people can kind of take it to the to their own lives and, and, and bring it with them that's exactly what i did okay time to ask him the question yeah okay well tell me about tell me about this song the reason i'm calling you tell me about nothing arrived mm-hmm what do you want to know? I want to know what this song means to you, how you wrote this song, and kind of just get into that. So I know it's over six years old, but tell me about how you wrote this song and where this came from. I guess, I mean, to give you some personal context, I, I, I don't want to get into it too much, but around the time that I wrote, I started writing this tune, my sister died quite suddenly. Um, and also I went through like a, a breakup, which was like of a seven-year relationship. So a lot of loss was happening in my life and I think it was happening all at the same time and it was quite overwhelming. Yeah. Is it hard to sing that song ever still? No, it's actually a really, really nice experience. It's really, um, it, it's the closest I get to meditation or something in the set, you know. It's, it, there's, a, there's a really um, intense release with it. Um, no, it's a really, it's a joyful experience singing it. I, 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 really, like, I really like it. I haven't gotten sick of it yet, which is a good, good sign. Yeah, so I, uh, it's so funny, I just teared up listening to you um, talk about it, because for me, it was something that, um, I think we all do this a little bit, where we take songs of other people, and we're like, this song is about me, you know, and uh, or like, songs go, and they're, um, they hit you, and they're like, this is exactly what um, I'm going through, and this is what... Mm. This person understands me, you know, like or the song is a, is exactly um, exactly what I'm going through. And it was just so much about loss. And um, so I, you know, well, I, I, um, 
I had a miscarriage, and so I had a miscarriage in um, in February, and it, it oh, really sorry. yeah, thank you. It, it hit me a lot harder than I ever thought it would. I I know those things like just mm-hmm. I don't know. I it just hit me a lot harder than I thought it would, and so I kind of like didn't. I went into a a hole of not not consuming my favorite things, media, you know, not listening to music, not uh, reading mm-hmm. books, not anything for a long time, and then when I came out of that hole, I. Uh, turned on the radio and, and was like walking down the street um, listening to KXP and uh, this song came on and it was just like, it was um, the first time I'd really uh, kind of put myself back out into the world um, and also it was just so profound. I just, it just, oh, wow. exactly what I was going through um, and I just, you're going to, you're going to make me, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> Uh, that's very nice very nice for me to hear anyway yeah I mean it's just like um, and the lyrics I I just I'd heard this song a lot before and I didn't it was like I hadn't heard them before and so I was like I have to find out what this song is about um, because it was you know like I waited (laughs) and it sounds really dark whenever I read it out loud and uh, with this experience in Uh mind but like I waited for something and something died and then I waited for nothing and nothing arrived And it just feels like I had nothing tangible, you know, to like, I had mm-hmm. like losses, just this really interesting thing where you don't have like something physically gone a lot of the time. It's just mm-hmm. like that, like hole. Yeah. That, that's sort of um, something that, yeah, just the, the thing about something and nothingness, you know, the, the, the fact that the idea of holding on to um, things that are, I guess, determinate and, you know, have. I guess defined limits, you know, physical things, and um, that's just such a human impulse, and it, it forever will be, you know. And then when you realize this, this vast nothingness, you know, and it's it's always been there, but there's a certain points in your life when it when it actually really hits you, you know. And you can, I think, the song is kind of trying to focus on the more abstract um, aspect of that nothingness, and within that, it's um, there's hope, you know, within all those within this kind of freedom there's there's a, there's hope in, in this darkness you know and that's kind of what the song's trying to yeah trying to say i guess yeah yeah i have to ask i mean there's this part that um so the, the song's going on and i'm like this is insane um it feels exactly right um like i'm what i'm going through like my dear sweet nothing let's start anew from here on all in it's just me and you my dear sweet nothing So I'm like, this feels so much like what I'm going through. And then, um, but something that I think is assumed, but people don't really talk about, um, especially with miscarriages, like this guilt of like, what did I do? I did something wrong, you know? And I Mm. think that that's actually a part of a lot of loss and breakups and and death is like this weird guilt that you can't really assign Mm. anywhere. And and then... uh, and then the end of the song that goes, uh, I guess I was busy when nothing came. I guess I was busy when nothing came. I guess I was busy when nothing arrived. 
over and over again is just this uh, this nod to, or what it hit me is like, I've been putting off trying to have kids forever. Um, not forever, mm-hmm. but like, you know, because I'm like, I'm going to live my life. I'll have kids later. I'm going to get a career. I'm going to have a, a savings account. And then um, it just felt like I've been busy this whole time and then nothing arrived, mm-hmm. you know? It was just like this, like, God damn it, why is he... Why is he doing this to me? <laughs> kind of feeling at the end of the song. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, all we, you know, I think that all we want is like to feel known. And so this is, this was um, sure. really yeah. amazing. But I did want to ask what that lyric itself meant to you. In the bit where it says, I guess I was busy when nothing came. It's kind of a realization that that nothingness was, was always with you. and You just didn't necessarily notice this but now you're now that you're growing and now that you're shedding old skin you're you know your life will be richer for that because you're becoming a more um complex creature you know and you're becoming you're you're having a, a sort of an, another form of growth the realization that nothingness was always with you you just didn't notice it again this is what losing an early pregnancy feels like when we looked even closer at this song it resonated even deeper with me I guess that's the beauty of songs, isn't it? You can, I mean, you can take it, take it in a more simple. You can take it anyway, really. You know, where you can ignore certain parts. I've ignored so many parts of songs that didn't resonate with me, but nothing in this song I ignored. Connecting to nothing arrived helped me feel less alone in a really dark time, and exploring it more through this conversation with Connor took that connection to music and connected me with people, a person which I am insanely grateful for. When we wrapped up our conversation, I thanked Connor for his time. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for sharing as well. That was pretty pretty intense, but very real. I, I, I like real interviews, you know. They're a lot more fun. Yeah, well, I appreciate you. Yeah, I really appreciate you listening to it. I was very obviously scared. Not obviously, I don't know. I was nervous all of a sudden right before I walked in, but I don't know. Your, your music really hit me and it was the first time after all of that that I felt connected again which um, is something I really value is feeling connected and to life and the you know not to get too woo but like the universe and um, yeah it was the first time I I felt so unconnected going through all of that and then this song really made me feel connected so I really appreciate it and I thank you for that wow okay I'm gonna have a little cry after this now so Thank you. Yeah. Connor cried. Yeah. I cried. We were strangers at the beginning of this conversation. But talking about this song and this deep dive into loss, this exploration of art, really made me realize I am not alone. I am not alone in my sadness. I am not alone in this loss. I am not alone in this world. And that's the power of music. If you've had a miscarriage and are grieving, you are not alone. There are a list of resources and support at perinatalsupport.org. I cannot vouch for any of these as I did not use any of their resources. I dealt with my miscarriage by crying in the street and then calling a rock star halfway across the world to talk about it. I recommend it. It really helped. Huge thanks to Connor O'Brien and Villagers. I'm Rachel Stevens for KXP's Sound and Vision.
This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. If you think you can save me, Wise Blood will headline KEXP's Concerts at the Mural this Friday. Concerts at the Mural happen at the Mural Amphitheater at the Seattle Center by the Space Needle the first four Fridays in August. KEXP's Jasmine Albertson caught up with Wise Blood to talk about her latest album, Titanic Rising. Wise Blood says the title was indeed inspired by the movie Titanic. It's a film with a plot that represents more than meets the eye and resonates today. You know, I, I could see the love story was just kind of woven into it to keep people, you know, watching. But I felt like the real takeaway was the hubris of man and our lack of dominion over nature and how this, you know, at a time where the Gilded Age where men were so confident that they, you know, could conquer nature and then just be so heinously wrong in the most embarrassing way. And then instead of, you know, everybody suffering, it's kind of like the third class takes the hit for... Mm -hmm you know, the rest of the population. And I really feel like that. And the reason I kind of wove it into my record this time around was it's kind of, you know, similar to what's going on now, as opposed to um, crashing into an iceberg and having a ship sink. It's like we are melting the polar ice caps and sinking civilization. And the people that are going to get you know, take the heaviest hit are definitely the third class of the world and people that don't have the infrastructure to really deal with, you know, the damages of climate change. Wise Blood saw Titanic when she was nine. And then when she was 12, she decided she would stop watching movies entirely. And that lasted for a few more years. She said she stopped watching movies because of how manipulating they could be emotionally. Movies that kind of brainwashed people to believe life was a certain way or looked a certain way or, you know, kind of whitewashing reality and things like that. And I just had no patience for it anymore. I I would start watching it and I could see how they were kind of pulling on heartstrings or tapping into, you know, people's emotional weaknesses. And I felt like I just wanted the real thing. I wanted reality, you know. And this idea is the subject of one of the songs on Wise Blood's latest album, Titanic Rising. The song is called Movies, and she sings the lines, I'm bound to that summer, big box office hit, making love to a counterfeit. Why did so many get a rise out of me? I love the movies. So let's take a listen. Big box office hit Making love to a counterfeit This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. A local band called Lamolo grabbed our attention recently with a powerful song about the vulnerability that comes with living your truth in the public eye. The song is called High Tide. The band's singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Megan Grandel spoke with KEXP's Owen Murphy about the single and being an independent artist. So you're independent. You do everything yourself. You're even your own publicist. You're your own record label. Spotify streaming services have made it nearly impossible to make money off of recorded music. So what does it mean to you right now to be an independent artist? Well, to me, I guess there's there's two questions in that. Like, what's the hardest part about being an artist in general? To me, it's just being vulnerable. I think is uncomfortable. You know, even, I mean, I love playing shows, but I always get really nervous. And it's not like a natural 
place to write a song that comes from your heart, it's really hard to then put it out into the world, you know? So that I think in its core is maybe it's easy for some people, but it's not for me. So that's hard for me. But then to be independent, I think maybe the biggest challenge is just the requirement to be able to juggle a lot of things and wear all of the different hats. Tell me about the song uh, High Tide. Um, why is this the first single? Uh, sing, sing, signal. <laughs> single. I guess it is uh, the first signal too. They're right. Um, <laughs> and what people should know about it. Yeah. So a little backstory about me is something that I love to do almost as much as play music is to sail boats. I have a little tiny sailboat that I like to cruise around in. And I grew up doing a lot of sailing. Like my high school had a sailing team. I'm com- I'm from out in a small town in the Puget Sound area. So there's a lot of opportunity for that. Lots of water around. And as a kid, I equated high tide with the ultimate sense of freedom because when it was high tide was when I could launch my sailboat. Because if the tide was out too far, it was too muddy and I couldn't get the boat past the mud to get to the water. So with that thought in mind, I wrote the song High Tide. I think the overall message is just kind of exploring the thought of feeling freedom to be who I am, my authentic self. And the song kind of touches upon lots of little moments of things that different people have said to me that hurt. (laughs) Things I've taken to heart that I have never forgotten. And I guess, you know, it's easier to remember the negative things (laughs) than the positive things that people say to you. But yeah, the song is kind of like each line of the song is a different thing. Someone has said to me over the course of my life about how they think I should be. A lot of people have told me, oh, you're too... Um, you're too bubbly, like you seem too happy. You should be more serious. And then other people have said, you should really smile more. (laughs) You know, that's just one example. And not to isolate anyone, but most of these experiences have been men saying these things to me, like after a show or, you know, and I think that's comes with the territory of putting yourself out there, performing, being vulnerable. You're putting yourself out there to get people's opinions. But these things that I wrote the song about are all times when I didn't ask for <laughs> ask for someone's opinion. Um, and just kind of me putting all those moments into one song and being like, okay, all these moments really culminated into this feeling of me questioning who I am. Like, who am I? How should I be? <laughs> when you strip away everyone else's opinion, like, how do I want to be? And who am I? as my authentic self and just kind of finally having the courage to explore that and realize like, okay, I don't need someone's opinion about how I should act. I can just be free to be me, (laughs) if that makes sense. So after all that, all these dumb things that uh, these guys have said, uh, (laughs) uh, what did you find? What what was the, the, and you said you kind of stripped it all away. Um, what, What do you want yourself to be? I want to not have to worry about what someone else thinks. And I think in the past I've spent a lot of time doing that. And so this song is a good reminder to just try to stop. Someone say, is my own. 
Megan Grandel of the local band Lamolo. The single High Tide was just released. Their full-length album is coming out in October. This is Sound and Vision. This next story is about another court case involving copyright infringement in the music industry, and it puts the pressure on producers and songwriters. Katy Perry, along with Capitol Records, is on the hook for nearly $3 million for six notes in her 2013 hit, Dark Horse. I'm capable of anything, of anything, and everything. So the notes we're talking about is what you kind of hear in the background, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. So a court recently ruled that those six notes infringed upon a 2008 song from the Christian group called Flame in their song, Joyful Noise. Let's talk about it. Your boy's been a Christian quite a few years. Victory and faith, but I failed in my fears. So again, here is Katy Perry's song. Make me talk about what this case means for songwriters, producers, and the music community moving forward is Matt Jasper. He's a music business veteran who's worked for the National Association for Music Publishers, among others. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having me again, Emily. So Katy Perry's lawyer argued in court that Flame is trying to own, quote, basic building blocks of music, the alphabet of music that should be available to everyone. So Legally, how much of a song has to be similar in order to infringe on copyright? So what is at stake is the claim that Dark Horse, uh, Katy Perry's song, is a derivative of Flame's song. So what a derivative work is, is the definition that the new work that was created, either knowingly or unknowingly, uses substantial similarity elements to the previous composition. So there's two pieces that need to be compared. First is whether or not, from a musical standpoint, the track is similar. So what we just heard is that and a judge needs to listen to both songs and say, oh, that element of this song is similar. I, I see that these are basically the same pattern. And they listen for other elements. And it's basically up to the judge to say, yes, okay, the beat is similar. This uh, repetitive hook is similar. Maybe the verses are similar and the structure and the timing of these verses to choruses to verse, chorus, bridge, outro, and so forth. That's all That's all generally synced up with the number of measures, the tempo, all of the elements that make up a song. So that's the first step that needs to be proven for a derivative work. The next step through jury proof is that they need to be able to show that the songwriters of the new song, meaning the defendants in this case, were able to be exposed to the original song in some way. But the challenges with music going digital between YouTube plays and and MySpace and all sorts of other places. So this was known within the Christian rap community as being a popular song. 
It may not be nearly as popular as Katy Perry's Dark Horse, but you need to prove that exposure to the song um, from the songwriters and kind of link that up in some way. And so in court, I mean, was there, did Katy Perry admit, yes, I've heard this song before? She did not. She said, I had never heard this song before. Now, the prosecution, meaning the Christian rap team, said, you came up out of the Christian music community in Nashville, and in the early to mid-2000s, this was your jam, was the Christian music scene. So it's possible she may have heard that. What is more likely that happened was, according to Katy Perry, she said, I just showed up to the studio and Dr. Luke, my producer, had this beat ready for me, and then I wrote the lyrics on top of that. So then the burden of proof kind of shifts from Katy Perry herself to Dr. Luke and his team. So then you say, okay, Dr. Luke, how did you hear of this song? Is it possible that you may have had some exposure in these six million listens or views? Did you hear this song? And that's kind of that back and forth argument that the prosecution and the defendants had in court. And I can imagine if you're a big pop star, so you might not be the only songwriter. You will have a producer. You could have a beat maker. There's a lot of people here. And sometimes, especially if you're just pouring out pop songs left and right, you probably hear a lot of music. You make a lot of music. And I can see how there can easily be overlaps there. Yes, So this case kind of reminds me of the lawsuit between the song Blurred Lines uh, involving Robin Thicke and Marvin Gaye's song Got to Give It Up. So the Marvin Gaye estate won the lawsuit last year because Blurred Lines was so similar in overall sound and vibe to the Marvin Gaye song Got to Give It Up. So here's Blurred Lines. And here is Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. So this case last year, um, Marvin Gaye won in court. But this case is a little bit different than the Katy Perry case because I understand Blurred Lines intentionally wanted to kind of mimic um, Marvin Gaye's song. Can you tell me more about this? So remember, the definition of a derivative work is if it knowingly or unknowingly uses substantial similarity to the existing composition. So in the case of Blurred Lines versus Robin Thicke or Robin Thicke's case, he went into the studio. Robin Thicke went into the studio telling his producer, I want a vibe similar to Marvin Gaye's song. That was a clear case of knowingly. And even before the lawsuit was filed, he said in a Rolling Stone interview, which I remember reading at the time that that song came out, he said, like, yeah, I went to my producer and said, I want that Marvin Gaye vibe. And that's going to get you a derivative work lawsuit if you say that in press. Come on. So, <laughs> so that was a clear case where you could prove that there was a knowing concept. So it really came down to the musicality of it, which is substantially similar as well. Because when you ask a producer to, to make a song that sounds like Marvin Gaye's song, he's going to make a song that sounds like Marvin Gaye's song. He knows how to do that stuff. Yeah, I remember when I heard that song for the first time, I thought he was actually sampling Got to Give It Up. Turns out there are a little bit of differences, but overall it is definitely the vibe of that song. And I remember when when the Marvin Gaye estate won this case last year, actually in Seattle court, um, I was excited. I was like, yes, 
Um, being from Michigan, Motown is close to my heart. I love Marvin Gaye. That is his song. Um, and I remember posting something on Twitter about it. And one of my friends uh, who's also in the music community back in Michigan was like, no way. What this says about the music industry, this is going to make it so hard for artists. It's just a general genre. It's a vibe. And now you can't recreate that in a way. And so when it comes to this case, Katy Perry's case, I mean, what's at stake for musicians and music moving forward? Is it like, you know, we've already done this. We got to move forward. We got to continue to push musicians to create new music. Or is it like, you know, when I also heard Blurred Lines, I kind of liked it because it did remind me of Marvin Gaye, but it was pretty much Marvin Gaye's song at the heart of it, it seems. So when it comes to these cases moving forward, what does this mean for musicians and producers? So there's two sides to the argument. One side is there is a certain genre no matter what your music, it will fall into that. There is a certain format or formula or structure to that where there's going to be, let's say, in the case of EDM, you're going to have a buildup and then a drop, and then it's going to bounce back, and that's what gets the crowd going for an EDM song. That is a format that in theory could be at risk if you take this example to the extreme. But the flip side to that is that there is songwriters that write a song that may or may not be able to profit from their songwriting if they are taken existing advantage of. And I think that from a fan perception, this comes down to levels of popularity. Because Marvin Gaye is as known, if not more known, than Robin Thicke, You say, yeah, Marvin Gaye's estate got one for the good guys. But if it was Flame, who maybe you haven't heard of before, even though if you're a big Christian rap fan, you probably have heard of him because he's gotten six million views or listens. He's at one point prominent in the music industry within that genre and has potentially typified a certain type of sound. So if... Flame typifies the sound that then became the sound of the 2010s, which in a lot of ways, this minimal repetitive riff with uh, beats underlying it is kind of the sound of the 2010s for pop music. Should he get some percentage of that? Maybe not for the entire genre, but in cases where it is um, explicit, both the link between the songs and the connection of exposure between the songwriters, that's something that, according to legal and the letter of the law, should be the case. So it's almost like, you know, with Flame, it's like, yeah, wasn't as big of an artist as Marvin Gaye. But if let's say you're up and coming artist and someone takes a riff off of your song, you know, you're like, hey, <laughs> I'm not Katy Perry. I can't make a bunch of money, you know, touring in arenas. I should be able to get a profit. I can see that. But also, like, what about artists that, you know, there's so much music. There's, 
you know, I think about, you know, my 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 training as a classical musician in in music theory class in college and it's 1451 that's your cadence, you know, like so many songs have, you know, those chords in progression, you have the same cadence every single time, especially in classical music, but it's like People can accidentally come up with things that someone else has come up with before and then get busted. Are we going to see more of that, do you think? I don't think that the interpretation of the law is going to go to a point where every 12-bar blues now is owned by, let's say, the original bluesman and the team that decides to pursue every single case that way. I think it's going to be if there is a significant level of awareness on number one hit songs that then have a clear-cut case of exposure, this will continue to happen. Matt Jasper, music business veteran. He's worked for the National Association for Music Publishers. Thank you so much for coming in and talking about this complicated case about copyright laws when it comes to uh, music as it relates to the Katy Perry case, Dark Horse, and, and many, many more. Thanks so much. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. The first story we heard on this podcast, the one about connecting with music after a miscarriage, it inspired our week's listener question. We asked listeners, what is a song that when you first heard it described exactly what you were going through? And our first answer will sound familiar. My name is Jessica. I am from Shoreline, Washington. Um, and a song that really spoke to me is To Build a Home by Cinematic Orchestra. Um, my husband and I decided that it was now or never. If we were going to have a child, we needed to do it uh, as I was getting older. And we got pregnant pretty quickly. And then about eight weeks after we found out we were pregnant, we had a miscarriage. And that was totally unexpected. Nobody had talked about it. I had gone from one of the happiest moments of my life to just feeling completely empty. And then we ended up having another miscarriage. And one day I was, I was driving home actually from an appointment um, with a doctor after a miscarriage appointment. And on the morning show, I heard To Build a Home by Cinematic Orchestra. And that became the song for this situation. The lyrics, I climbed to the tree to see the world when the gusts came around to blow me down. And, and that's really how I felt. It was like the highest I'd ever been and, and the lowest I'd ever been all in a span of, you know, a couple of months and that song was my place to go to, to not be judged for my grief and to not be made to try and feel better. And fast forward to today, I uh, was able to have a successful pregnancy and we are now very proud parents of a four-year-old boy. And so it ended up good. By the cracks of a skin I climbed to the top I climbed the tree My name is Rich Roselle. I live in Frankfurt, Illinois. Uh, the song is Burnt Sugar is So Bitter by Elvis Costello. I was married in 1986. We had a child in 91. And by the time my daughter was five or so, we were starting to have some issues 
in the marriage, partly due to my communication issues and a little bit of depression. And thanks to a wonderful marriage therapist, uh, we got things back on track. And uh, when we were in our dating phase of our repaired relationship, I bought tickets to see Elvis Costello at the Park West in Chicago in October of 99. Midway through the show, he performed an unreleased song called Burnt Sugar is So Bitter. And as he began singing it, it was it really felt as if he was talking directly to me. Uh, it was about a woman leaving her husband and taking the kids. And it really had a profound effect on me. It was kind of a, this is what could have been for you moment. And I was almost uh, on the verge of tears. Our marriage survived. Our relationship is stronger than ever now. All is great. But I will never forget hearing Burnt Sugar for the first time at the Park West and how much it rattled me and it made me be thankful for the second chance I had with our marriage and our family and our lives together. She says, what is it that I've done that you want me to be punished? When she woke up one day to find that he had started to vanish. Yeah, this is Mark. I live in Seattle. On Wednesday, I heard John's story in the morning about songs that perfectly aligned with what you're going through and it just blew me away because the previous day I was getting an MRI and the radiologist strapped me into the machine and gave me a pair of headphones and said he'd use those to communicate with me but also asked if there was any music I'd like to listen to during the procedure and I said no just surprise me and then right as the machine started to suck me in Aerosmith Dream On came on. I'm not much of an Aerosmith fan. I at first like wasn't quite sure what it was, but I knew I knew the song. And then as the lyrics started, I thought he was like pranking me. Like it was like uh, this like song about like morbid self-reflection. And uh, I, I kind of called out to him like, "Is this is this like some sort of a joke?" And he was oblivious. But I just laid there and listened to. Uh, every bit of it and it, it every time i hear that song moving forward uh, it's going to take me back to that that mri machine Thanks, everyone, for sharing their story this week. It really means a lot. Thanks also to Owen Murphy and Jasmine Albertson with their interview contributions this week. And thanks to Rachel Stevens for sharing her personal story. And thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It lets other people know that it exists. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing does actually make a difference. And you can also make a difference by giving a one-time $20 donation to this podcast at kexp.org slash sound. And as we wrap up each and every podcast, we ask someone why music matters. In the broadcast version of the show on Saturday, we interviewed Seattle City Councilwoman Teresa Mosqueda. So Seattle had its primary election last week, but Mosqueda didn't have to run because she's in the middle of her term. 
I asked her about what Seattle is doing to support artists. You can listen to that interview at the archive section at kexp.org. Meanwhile, here was her answer for why music matters. Music is an expression of your inner feelings that maybe you hadn't even been able to verbalize yet. Music allows us to um, smile when we're down or to be able to, you know, process uh, what we might be going through at the moment. I um, am now seven months pregnant and both sing to our new little girl to come and play music to her in the womb as well. And she had the chance to sit in the KEXP studios a few weeks ago when there was live recording happening. And it was just so moving. I'm, I'm actually again, I'm getting moved to tears right now thinking about it because it really does allow you to feel a feelings that you might not even have the chance to reflect on if you didn't have someone singing those words or bringing uh, to your ears the tones that they're able to make with the instruments. That was Sound and Vision. See you next week.